Welcome to the Rock Music Podcast, hosted on Google Hangouts. Hey everyone, this is Nate Owens, Aaron Van Valkenburg, Ryan Steiner, and Jonathan Van Valkenburg. We are uh, back again to talk about a few of our favorite songs and albums, and I picked the album for this month. I picked Document by R.E.M. I, I should give a little bit of background here. When I when I was getting into college, and Aaron Aaron was my college roommate, and Ryan lived with me, and John practically lived with me, so um, you guys know that I went through a, a very strong phase lasting a very long time really being obsessed with U2, and one of the bands that's very often associated with U2 is R.E.M., and so, but I never really got into them for a number of reasons, but the probably the biggest one was laziness. I just didn't want to go to the trouble to have to track down their albums and, you know, and all this stuff, so I never really worried about it. Well, when I got into Spotify or when I when I got Spotify, I'm like, you know, that's something I've always meant to do. I'm going to I'm going to get into it. And this was actually the first one I picked. The reason for that is because it has it's the end of the world as we know it, which is probably the one REM song. I mean, there's a lot of REM songs that everyone can name and everyone you know could say, "Oh, that's their song." And that's the one I that's the biggest one to me. So I picked this one and it's probably ended up being my favorite. I really like New Adventures in Hi-Fi, which was the last one with Bill Berry, their drummer, um, before he left, and they kind of wandered in the wilderness for three or four albums. And uh, But this is probably my favorite one, and I think a big part of it is there's about three or four songs in here that to me are like, when I think of, oh, what does R.E.M. sound like? I think, oh, they sound like these songs. And I'll talk about those a little bit later on, but I think... In the context of where they were as a band at the time, it's a really fascinating album too. They're, you know, they they spent five albums and as many years on an independent label called IRS, and five years in the trenches doing albums and touring constantly. That's a for a band that became as big as REM did. That's a that's a pretty long time to be paying your dues. Five albums is a long shelf life before you get your break. And actually, my favorite albums by them are all those first five. I, I really love their first two and then albums four and five. Those That's probably my favorite stretch of theirs. But it's it's transitional in that sense. So it's the last one they did before they got their big break with Warner or whoever it was who did their next one. It's the um, their first top ten hit uh, is from this album, which was a, a really unexpected kind of thing. This one goes out to... The one I love made it to number nine on the Hot 100, and uh, and so there's that. It's a big album for them in terms of production. It's the first time they worked with Scott Litt, who is a producer of their next like five or six albums, which is a really long association to have between a band and a producer, and um, and it just has a lot of a lot of songs I really like on it. I, I don't know if just just to kind of get started here to kind of prime the pump. What did you did you guys just have some? overall impressions of it before we kind of dig into it. I'm curious to hear what you thought. I I mean, I recognize a lot of the songs just because I know uh, Will, uh, who is not on this, who was invited and like a jerk has not joined us. Um, that guy, man. <laughs> uh, he, he liked R.E.M. Uh, and so did, uh, you know, people in our friends group in high school uh, because we're old. Well, and, and you know, John, you're especially when we were in high school. That's when REM was probably peaking. Maybe just a couple of years before I, you know, in like '94, '95 was really when they were at their absolute peak of of fame, and it kind of went downhill after that for a number of reasons. So, 
I heard this album and I instantly was like, oh, this is, you know, high school. And it also reminded me a lot of They Might Be Giants. Yes. Um, <laughs> yes. And I love They Might Be Giants. And I know you're a big fan of They Might Be Giants. I am. Um, I am. Which then even makes the association in sound even more awesome. I, I have to hear that one explained eventually, but keep going. <laughs> well, I mean, I... When I when I listen to them, that's kind of what I, you know, it, it I guess maybe on some of their songs. I wouldn't say all of REM, obviously, but Zoom this McCarthy was definitely. They might be giants. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there were some of theirs where they're a little bit more tongue in cheek, and I just thought, nice, uh, listening to John yeah. Henry, uh, <laughs> and uh, and so it was uh, it was it was fun. It was more of a trip down, you know. Nostalgia for me than more than anything. Very easy to listen to. Not something for me that I particularly would put on like repeat. You know, a lot of times it's more of one that I'm like, okay, I'm gonna listen to this album, and you know, I'll be happy when I'm done. Um, not 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 because it's done, but I mean, it, I was satisfied. Um, <laughs> Finally, I sat through the whole thing. <laughs> I just have this really I dare bad... you listen to all of Rain and Blood, John. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, you have to pay me so much money, and then I would still want to tear my eyes out. Um, and then I would be mad because I should have just ripped my ears off so I didn't have to hear it. Anyway. So, no, I mean, I, I personally loved it. I'm, the song that I knew the most of theirs was It's the End of the World as we know it. I mean, that's... I mean, I think if you heard REM and that's the only thing you'd ever heard it's probably that song and I think you know that's kind of how I've always associated with them so it was cool to hear some different some different stuff because you know I only listened to a couple songs off this album back when I when it was actively popular which would be maybe when it came out which is what 1987 through the 90s is when it got its legs, you know, like you were mentioning, 94, 95 is kind of they were peaking popularity. So you know they were in they were in my playlist kind of well at the time it was my stack of CDs, like Collective Soul. So you know, that's, Tom Brady. Yes, and Tom Brady. Tom Brady was uh, <laughs> at Michigan and I was already in love. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, I, I really love the there. album. Go ahead, Aaron. I love the album. Um, I think it was a great album, very manageable to listen to the whole time. I think I agree with you, John. I, I didn't want to put it on repeat, but it was it was a nice, in a way, it's because it felt right as a full listen. You know, I don't know how long it is, forty-five minutes. I don't think I think it's like thirty-five. It's pretty short. Okay, okay. but it, it just felt balanced. It was good. I. Um, I also only knew it's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. Um, you feel fine but, about that being the only song you know, huh? <laughs> yes. Well, I want to say about that song, because I think we feel like we know a lot about the song, but it, it was interesting because it sounds, the execution of the lyrics there, again, it's just it, that's what makes that song stand out a lot. I mean, it has a nice catchy refrain and all. Um, and it has their distinctive sound, but that kind of fast delivery, which um, I was just looking back, and um, there's a good, rich history of that type of delivery. I don't know if you all know uh, 
Bob Dylan's Subterranean Homesick. Oh Blues. yeah, I love that song. So, um, and of course the, of course Nickel Creek covered that uh, on one of their albums, but um, that kind of defined that style of delivery in a lot of ways in pop music. Johnny Cash has that. Uh, I've been everywhere, wherever that song is. I've been to Reno, Chicago, Fargo, Minnesota, Buffalo, Toronto, Winslow, Sarasota, Wichita, Tulsa, Ottawa, Oklahoma, Tampa, Panama, Madawa, La Paloma, Bangor, Baltimore, you know Salvador, Alabama. I don't know what it's called. I've been everywhere, man, whatever it is. Everywhere, uh, man, probably. <laughs> yeah, and then um, Billy Joel's We Didn't Start the Fire a couple years later has this kind of slower, but, you know, listing things, kind of monotone thing. And if you want to go all CCM, I went made my own nostalgia playlist um, for Christian contemporary Christian music. Um, Michael B. Smith had a song called Someday on Lead Me Home, which is mid-90s, that kind of did the same thing as well. And so this kind of listing, um, and kind of, it's kind of monotone, but just kind of like this rapid-fire lyric delivery has a rich history. And I, honestly, I think this and Bob Dylan's are the best of all those. Well, and this one's a little different from Bob Dylan and Johnny Cash and all you know all these other and that this song is the the lyrics if you actually like read them they don't mm-hmm. they don't actually connect. I mean they're barely, you know, they they're just sort of vague images and aren't direct, you know, they they don't they don't seem to connect. They repeat a lot. They have this sort of fevered insanity to them much more than those other songs do which just kind of cram a lot of stuff into a small amount of space. And so I that's an that's one song I'm going to talk kind of about highlights for me but that's that's still the highlight of the album for me which is usually when you hear an out a song a dozen times and you know 50 times and 100 times and the the song that that big single that you knew it from that that brought you to the album that one you kind of were like all right I don't need to hear this again but that song is like no that that song really is that good for me um and that one, that's when it's like, that's when I turn it up when I'm in the car. And uh, yes, I know I do pretty well keeping up with it. I sang it in rock band at a birthday party not a month ago. And I got like 90%. I'll have you guys know. So Nice. Well yeah. done. Thank you. Thank you. You put that on my resume or something. <laughs> no pretty good lyrics. at the lyrics to End of the World as We Know It. <laughs> but can you do We Didn't Start the Fire? If they're listed in front of me. How about you? How about you, Ryan? Uh, you know, this is perfectly cromulent. Um, <laughs> I I don't really have strong feelings on this one. Uh, I I like listening to it fine. The highlights are the highlights, and the rest of it's just kind of there. I think for me, my REM jam is automatic for the people and uh, Monster. I I listen to those a lot. Like I have a lot of memories with those. Those are both so those albums. are more nostalgia albums for me. Um, but this one just kind of I listened to it probably three or four times, and I just couldn't come up with any strong opinions on it one way or another. Like it's just it's just solid, you know. It's good music. It's I can jam to it, but it's not something that is like on my oh oh I need to listen to that right now, you know. Um, but yeah, I think it's I think it's well crafted. I think it 
it kind of has a nice uh, a nice balance between like spontaneity and kind of playfulness, but not not like off the cuff either. Like it's very well crafted. Um, it's just it's just solid. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I'll just ramble because I don't really have much to say about it. I'm more interested to hear what, more, why you picked it, Nate, uh, specifically this one. I, and you kind of touched on that, but yeah, um, you know, it's um, it, it it's interesting when you go into the way I, I when I'm discovering a band that's been around for a long time and it has a lot of material and a lot of really well regarded material. Because really, if you go back to and through REM's catalog, they only have had one album that no one liked, and that was uh, Around the Sun in 2004, which is a real snooze of an album. I love that album! <laughs> Do you really? No, I... I okay. <laughs> I, I wouldn't like, be surprised. You would literally be the first person I've heard say that. Uh, <laughs> um, so they have so many highlights, and they have a lot of big, super well-regarded albums. Their first, their first two, Murmur and Reckoning, are both really good and really considered classics. Um, you mentioned Automatic for the People. Most people would say that's their favorite. Um, that one I find a little... It, it's a, that one's a little sleepy for me. It's a little long. I, I, my favorite, my highlights of that album are actually when it picks up a little more. Out of Time, which was the one right before Automatic for the People, is really, really well-regarded. So Document's one of these ones that's maybe considered like second-tier by a lot of people, but what I'm what I found is that it's, I think the fact that it does have the, the closest balance between that sort of jangly REM sound that everyone when it, people know what does REM sound like they think of that jangly chiming guitar, but then it also has a lot of the muscle behind it that I really like, that's that their best stuff has. Their album before this, uh, Life's Rich Pageant, has a lot. It's probably more muscular, but this one I don't know. It's just everything on it. Especially the front half of the album, probably I, I, I think it it starts running out of gas a little between uh, probably right around Lightning Hopkins, which is like track nine, and that's kind of where it it's that's the one track that I kind of like eh, I don't know. Um, what one thing that has always appealed to me since I started listening to REM, and I think this is a kind of thing I've liked better as I've gotten older, um, is that they they ha- they are the masters of these these lyrics that are very oblique and a little vague and yet seem completely appropriate um, which is a weird thing to say like in um, on the end of the world as we know it when during the, the chorus um, you can hear I think it's Peter Buck their guitarist singing um, it's time I had some time alone in the background um, and I I really love that I love the lyric and I really just like how it meshes with everything else there's a lot of moments like that uh, the one I love is a really fascinating song to me lyrically partially because it's so simple it has all of you know this one goes out to the one I love a simple prop to occupy my time and then it says fire <laughs> and uh, and I don't know why that's that's a very reductive way to talk about the song because it it goes to that well a number of times and I don't I, I'm fascinated by the song how some people will interpret it as an actual love song and I guess they didn't hear the the line a simple prop to occupy my time which is such a such a cynical, dark view of love, and not in like violent, really horrifying way, but just this kind of like, it's it's something to fill the numbness kind of thing, which is a really sad, sad concept. I I, I find enormous um, fascination with with how they set up lyrics. Now that kind of brings me one of the things I I'm fascinated about is you know 
REM is known for a lot of their political activism, and in the 80s, a lot of you know more progressive and liberal people were really gen genuinely terrified with how things were going in Reagan's America, and now you know we're on this side of it, and so it's like, uh. but um, I'm I'm fascinated by the kind of time capsule effect on it because that's I, they have gone on record as saying that's a big theme of the album, and you hear it especially in now in the end of the world as we know it, you hear about like just sort of the chaos, feeling like the world really is spinning out of control. And the other one is uh, Welcome to the Occupation, which is one of my favorite songs in the album just because it has this feel of like 80s science fiction, like we will be taken over. And when I first thought it was like, oh, it's, you know, like that old miniseries, America, spelled with a K, which was the Soviets taking over the US, is what <laughs> I thought of initially, which I thought is a very 80s kind of thing. But then you hear it and it's basically like the revolution from within like we we are now unrecognizable to ourselves which you don't have to agree with them specifically politically to say you haven't felt that way at some point about your own country and really worried that way about your own country feeling like this is not what I recognize as being quintessential because they talk about the Congress burning you know and uh, just the the, the all the uh, imagery that comes up it's not troops marching in it is it happened while we weren't watching, and which, again, I think is just very potent imagery. So that's, I think that's one thing I'm fascinated by. I'm fascinated by political albums in general just because with hindsight you can trip away and it becomes more of an emotional thing and you can just kind of see those emotions how they were without being colored by current events. So that's, that's one thing I really found compelling about it. Lyrically, it's just a really, a really fascinating album to me. I think at some point... I, I noticed a lot of the same type of words coming up and obviously fire is like so even in Welcome to the Occupation uh, Fire to on the, Congress, the hemisphere below Fire, fire exactly fire on the hemisphere below. And the, actually the band the band has also said that that was Fire, I think I think Fire was a name that they kicked around for the album at some point. The one I love the refrain is Fire. And then of course there's the uh, throw the wall, the sweep the floor into the fireplace, so the chairs into the fireplace, on the smoke fireplace. Yeah. Uh, Lightning Hopkins just lightning, I guess. But then um, old fellows, local 151, why not Firehouse? You know, it's like, you know, yeah. what are they doing with Fire here? I don't, I don't even. Or are they just toying with us to see if we can find connections? <laughs> I don't know. It's possible, yeah. I, I don't know. I, I think that fire is such a potent imagery because we, I feel like we associate it with like kind of a passion consuming, you know, kind of thing. But I, I think it almost feels like in this, it's sort of the scorched earth that comes afterwards is sort of what they're what they're going with, and I, I found that really really fascinating as well. Or if you take it in context of the 80s and how much things were changing in technology and everything so quickly, just the concept of fire was being archaic. You don't need fire anymore. Um, you have, you know, electric heat and things like that. And so, you know, fire could represent just, you know, going back to the basics of survival, you know, so yeah. if it's supposed to be a, you know, man, the end of the world's coming, and you better know how to at least produce fire, um, or you're screwed. You know, that's that's you know, fire is the most essential. You know, that whenever people talk about the things that change the world, the wheel and fire. I mean, yeah, what, you you don't have one of those two things, and you don't progress. 
Um, if I was thinking of fire in context of this album as sort of a thematic thing, it would be to me it would be more of um, you know the world burning in nuclear fire and tied back to the 80s and the threat of Cold War and nuclear obliteration. Um, so that to me is kind of a sense that I get throughout it is in the context of the one I love, it's like fire, just burn it all down, you know, like, and that's sort of a, a thing that I sense throughout it is just this sort of sense of just, just burn it all down, just nuke it, you know, nuke, well, that's it, nuke the it whole, from space. Th- that's the whole lyrical conceit of fireplace is, you know, clear the floor to dance, sweep yeah. it all in the fireplace. And I like how every verse gets progressively more and more stuff gets thrown in the fire. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it starts as just empty the, you know, sweep the stuff, sweep the dirt into the fireplace, throw the rug, throw the chairs. <laughs> and I just like how it's like tearing apart this room and just throwing it all, you know, into the fireplace. I'm, it, again, I don't, I couldn't say what it means, but in a, in a lot of ways, I think we probably, as human beings, place more, place more emphasis than maybe we need to on thinking, trying to figure out what it means when a lot of times, and I think REM, their first album, is engineered in such a way that you can't understand a darn word that Michael Stipe is saying. I mean, it's like he has marbles in his mouth in their first album. And it's weird. I don't I don't think it needs to have the lyrics clarified for me because you get like it creates a certain kind of mood and a certain kind of uh, atmosphere that is you really couldn't get if you defined them a little closer. And I think you get that here except it's less about what he's actually saying like verbally and more about, well, what is this actually getting at? And it kind of is more suggestive than um, prescriptive. So, Yeah, it's in that ambiguity where the interesting stuff lies. And I think that this album has a lot of that, which is, you know, makes it good fodder for conversation. Right, because sometimes when you find out what it may actually mean, you're like, well, damn, that wasn't what I was anticipating. It just yeah. ruined the song for me. Yeah, you well, know? I, mean, I think... I, I think a lot of smart bands don't go down that road because, you know, the, to some extent, this is true of all art. You create it, but once it's out in the wild, you don't have control over it anymore. Yep. You know, you can't really say how someone's going to interpret your book or you can't know how some, what, what your song is going to mean to someone. And as soon as you explain, oh, this is what it really meant, you almost are robbing the listener to some extent. You know, I, that's, I, I, I don't want to know what that means. You know, I, I think of the example of, Orson Scott Card with Ender's Game, which Ender's Game is a great book. Everyone should read it. But when he talked about what he was what he was trying to convey in the book and then how everyone interprets it, and he was trying to convey the exact opposite <laughs> of how everyone interprets the book. And I heard that and I was like, that's interesting because it's not like someone's wrong. It's just that it's interesting that he now it's now something that he can't he can't wrangle down anymore. That's because that's what the it's not in a way that is now what the book means. And I, I, I think that, that which is a, that's a really postmodern relativistic way to look at it. But we're talking about art here, you know, mm-hmm. not morality or anything like that. And so I think that's a very appropriate way to, to view this kind of thing. So, Speaking of meaning, I didn't know if anyone got any Eastern vibes from King of Birds. Um, and I don't know the instrumentation, but there's this, um, I mean, there's a rich history of the Beatles and stuff of like, uh, drawing the Eastern influences and using the sitar and the zither and all these instruments that yeah uh, that, that kind of invoke the East and King of Birds has that kind of feel with this kind of snare is kind of doing this it's not military exactly but he's kind of this uh, very different percussion it's not a rock beat you know in the background you've got these kind of drone 
guitars, the kind of sound Eastern and. Uh, you know that that has one of, another one of my favorite lines, which is "Old man, don't lay so you're not yet young." Yes, that's, that's a very Eastern kind of that that sort of cyclical passage yeah. of time. Um, I, I I like that lyrical. I, I, that's actually one of my favorite songs. I, Oddfellow 151 is a weird, swampy kind of ending to the album, and I don't think it's a bad one. But it's like, what a strange note to end on. That it's just this sort of weird, gooey kind of thumping. That that sounds like really early U2 to me. Like U2 from their first album is what that sounds like. Um, not not lyrically at all like them, but it that's what the sound is to me. Boy. I'm I'm trying to I I'll be honest I don't remember the Oddfellow song as much from my listen and I know that one of the big things for the Oddfellows and this is really making me a complete dork but the reason I know anything about the Oddfellows is because of American Pickers and they are constantly finding things about you know uh, the Oddfellows and one of their big things was facing your own mortality. One of their ceremonies was they would blindfold one of their initiatives and then put a full skeleton, skull and everything, directly in front of them. And when they unblindfolded them, they literally their first image was of a human skull right in their face. Um, and so I think, you know, if if it's the end of the world and we as we know it, you know, if that's kind of the theme and then this would be an appropriate now I'm coming to grips with my, with the you know that it's going to end, and you and, feel fine, you know, yeah, that's exactly and, right, and, and you know, and the odd fellows that's a centric you know centric thing to there. You have to accept your own mortality before you can move forward. So I don't know whether that has any actual tie-in to the song or not, and I apologize. That's not one that I remember very well. Um, you know, John, it's it's interesting because there's a couple of moments. The one song that really stands out to me is uh, Disturbance at the Heron House. And it stands out to me because I, I kept trying to find out if it's based on an actual event. <laughs> I, And as far as I can tell, it's not. I don't know. Well, I mean, maybe someone who listens to this day will find it out and, and set me straight. But as far as I can tell, it's just a song about some some disturbance at the Heron House. And I, I, I'm fascinated by it because it's like, it feels like it's like a slice of something that I should know about, like a reference to something. And that's a that's a, a fun trick. I, I think that's how people build worlds in, in literature is you refer to something that you never really explain and it's treated by everyone else as, as something they already know about. And it, it has that same quality for me. It, it serves that same purpose. And I wonder if the Oddfellows connection is something else that feeds off of that. Yeah, that's something I'll definitely have to go look up um, to see if anybody else drew that kind of connection. Because, I mean, I didn't know anything about the Oddfellows for a you know, long time. And then all of a sudden now I, you know, I see, you know, with the Masons and the Oddfellows and, uh, you know, the Shriners and all these, you know, different organizations, they all have very similar things. But the Oddfellows are like the really out there, weird, you know, appropriately named group as far as some of their... Uh, philosophies and uh, I don't know uh, ceremony this album is old 
and yeah. we're still, you know, you know, to this day debating whether, you know, what things are uh, meaning-wise. And they may have just been like, back then, man, people are really be having a hard time figuring out what this means. This is gonna be awesome. Um, you know, just random stuff. Mm-hmm. One thing I'm I'm curious about, and this is more getting back to the context of the album. I'm I've always wondered to what extent they were intentionally trying to break through to the mainstream with this album. And I say that because if you listen to the four albums before it, Murmur, Reckoning, Fables of the Reconstruction, and Life's Rich Pageant, you listen to them and they're they're good, catchy albums. I think I think that Reckoning especially is a very catchy album, but it's like it feels like a band that's really saying that this is who we are, this is what we sound like, and then you get to this fifth album and it suddenly to me sounds in terms of production, in terms of songwriting and everything, it suddenly sounds much more accessible. And I'm curious if that was just if that's it. Now, sometimes that kind of thing happens as a product of working with a new producer. Like I said, Scott Litt was a guy who guided them through their mainstream success until well into the 90s. And maybe that's a function of that. I just, I've always been curious as to what extent that that was intentional or, or plotted or if they really even suspected to have a big hit with the one I love or that whether was, or not that... According to the bio writer... Um, that does just the album inserts for the Spotify history stuff. It was completely unexpected to have the one I love become a hit. And they said, you know, it's kind of ironic that the album before was a much more catchy tuned, cohesive album, but because the production, the production made it so inaccessible because it was not as crisp um, no, it's not. Life's Rich Pageant is a good album, and I really like it. But I, I think that's true. It, it feels that has a lot. That album is the first one that has a lot of variety. Like, oh, they'll throw in weird instrumentation. There's one song that has this sort of like nightclub Casbah kind of sound. There's a little bit of country bluegrass in it, and all sort of this driving rock um, that goes with it. Besides that, and this one is much more. Just sounds a lot cleaner. Um, maybe not quite as as of a piece as it was before, but um, that is definitely the case. Yeah, and the, the at least the person who was doing the history writing for it attributed it completely to a change in uh, producer. Yeah. And the signature sound of them came from him being the producer. Um, yeah, or at least or at least making that signature sound into something that would be a hit. Right, uh, right, right, right. The signature sound that, you know the average Joe is going to recognize as opposed to, you know, the core fan because I'll, I can hear even in their crappy stuff, which is not very much collective soul. I can hear the, the same elements from early stuff. Whereas the average person would be like, dude, just play shine or, you know, <laughs> run or, and, and then, and you know, they'll say they'll hear no connection and I, I can. So, yeah. you know, REM people are going to 100% be able to, you mean Collective Soul has more songs than Shine? I wasn't aware of that. <laughs> yes, that's, yes. That's good to know. Yes, to Tom know. Brady. We have, we have talked in two podcasts. We've talked more about <laughs> Collective Soul than anyone has for the last ten years. <laughs> that's completely We're getting all these Google alerts like, what is happening, guys? Resurgence. <laughs> We're going to get emails from Ed Rowland be like, hey, guys, you want to review our new album? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we would. I've yes, seen you concert four okay, times. <laughs> I am old. <laughs> All right. I, one hey, thing I thought I'd go throw ahead, in there before, and we don't have to talk about it long, but one thing that struck me with this album is just, I don't know the lead singer's name, but his voice is just 
really drives this album. Stipe, awesome. yeah, M- Michael Stipe, yeah. M- maybe it's all maybe it's all the albums set up that way. But when I listen to this, I think certain bands, I think maybe Porcupine Tree, you don't listen to them and say, oh yeah, that, that singer really was in front and center. Was, but this band is a band that seems that way. Would you all agree or? You know, Aaron, actually, the way R.E.M., one of the, the really defining aspects of the band was that they were a very democratic process in how in how they ran. They didn't make any... They the, the songs are all attributed as being by R.E.M. They had to have unanimous approval from all four members of the band before they made a move to do something. And it was... Which is one of the weird things. When their drummer left, their drummer got had an aneurysm on tour in like 94 or 95 and leave. He left after their next album which was New Adventures in Hi-Fi. And they they muddled for the rest of their career. They muddled through without a drummer, just using session drummers. And it was only, I mean, it took them a good three or four albums to find their feet after that. And they released their last two albums were were, were awfully good before they finally broke up just two or three years ago. And I, I, I attribute a big part of that kind of wandering sound to like, whoa, what do we do now that we're missing one one quarter of, of the band? You know, and not like... I mean, I, it's it's a very strange setup. Like every business decision, every business decision had to be made unanimously from all four people. But I do agree that Michael Stipe's voice is really—it does sell the band. They they work sort of like. I, I once heard Tom York from Radiohead say that when they were recording Kid A, he wanted to make his voice sound more like an instrument and less as something that was centered around that the song was centered around. And in some ways, while I do agree that I think Stipe's vocal on this feels like it's mixed a little further front, and not in a bad way, but I just compared to previous stuff, I think that's the case. But I, I do find it interesting that I, as much as anything else, and this is especially true in the early stuff, his voice is part of the song as opposed to what's necessarily driving it all the time. And so, but I, I agree. I think it, his he's got one of those voices that I think. It's distinctive in a not annoying way to me. I know a couple people who who really legitimately hate his voice. I only picked that out at something like Lightning Hopkins, which is a, a weird song. It's like that's just a bit much <laughs> to me. <laughs> his affectation in that song is just a little. It, it's a little grating whenever I hear it. It's not an awful song, but it's it, it does kind of pull the pull the wind out of the sails for me. It's all right, Nate. You can say you don't. Well, Michael Stipe might be listening though, and I don't want to disappoint him. So, <laughs> hey, Collective Soul listening. isn't listening. He's not listening. That's probably true. Although there's a greater chance that Collective Soul will be listening. That's because what else are they doing? Actually, well, no, because because REM's not a band anymore. So what else would he be doing? He's not like he's touring or something, you know? Yeah, but let's be honest. Collective Soul really all they're doing anymore is playing like party cruises. That's right. <laughs> Uh, yeah. So yeah, that was that is document by REM. I, now, Ryan, Aaron, John, do you guys have anything else you'd like to add? I've kind of gone through my list here of what I had, but um, curious if you guys have any more thoughts. Ryan, are you still as as just as empty-headed as you were before? Um, I think thematically, I'll have to go back and listen to it again and think of it more in terms of the '80s and um, fear. Maybe and uh, and the fire imagery. I hadn't really thought of that before, but still, musically, it's just kind of all right, you know. But um, you know, it's fine. Yeah, I'm still boring speaking, about it. Unfortunately, speaking of, of fine, I was just curious. I don't I don't know. I'm it might be a stretch, but the end of 
um, it's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. Yeah, I wonder if there's the the I feel fine is somehow trying to like reference the Beatles song. She's in love with me and I feel fine. That I mean that that song is a tough one to analyze because of it's such a stream of consciousness. Actually, I don't know if you guys noticed this in the last verse. Um, the part that everyone, it's like the anchor of the song when everyone can sing, uh, yeah, Leonard Bernstein. <laughs> it's like, that's like the, the, the one, the one calling card. Okay, guys, well, I'll, I'll meet you at Leonard Bernstein. <laughs> and, um, but every, every, he lists, um, uh, Leonard Bernstein, Leonid Brezhnev, Lenny Bruce, Lester Bangs, there's all these LB names. And Michael Stipe actually said it was because he just had a dream where there was everyone there who had the initials L and B. And he just put them all together in a song <laughs> in that one stretch. And it was just, he's like, oh, it sounded good. So. It's too bad it I, wasn't like 10 years later and he could have included Lance Bass. That would have been perfect. <laughs> there's I have, always time I have for one, a rewrite. I, I have one funny story to tell about REM, and then I, I, I think I'm going to done. I'm done here. You guys know I write for a website called Fortress Ameritrash, and on their forums uh, earlier last year, I, well, earlier last year, it was like middle of last year, sometime. They had a what they what they call trash dome, which the thing is they would take two things that are generally considered to be equivalent or equally well liked, and then would have people vote in the forums. Well, they they were experimenting with doing ones with music. And they did one with REM and the Smiths, which is Morrissey's band. And I, I now I should say I like the Smiths a lot. I I voted for REM because I like them a lot more. I think it was it was really funny because it was like I wandered into a room where I was the only person who liked REM. Everyone else hated them and was obsessed with the Smiths. And it was funny because I'm like a fairly active member there and it was suddenly I was like an outcast like people were I think a little pissed off at me that I would dare dare say that I liked REM better than the Smiths and it was just really funny I was like oh wow I'm I'm a long way from home here I gotta <laughs> I gotta get out of here yeah <laughs> so if any of those guys end up listening to this which is possible I'm sorry I still feel that way I like the Smiths a lot but I like REM a lot more so <laughs> There you go. That's my that's my REM story. Less that's brooding, at least. <laughs> it is. That's true. That's true. The lesson and is, if you like REM, be careful. That's right. People are going to rough you up, man. It's like Crips and Bloods. That's right. Except All right, guys. Internet. Yeah. Well, that is that is what we have for this week. Um, who is who is going to be bringing us an album next month? John. I think John should sure, do it. Or why not? Are we doing the uh, Voodoo Lounge? Oh, I, no, I, I thought that the album that I had selected was oh, okay. uh, was Jimmy Eat World. Um, oh, okay, yeah, choose whatever you uh, want. I wasn't sure because... Um, Are we doing a Futures or Chase This Light? See, that's a hard choice for me, but I think I'm going to go with Futures just because I have a little bit more um, backstory and, like, that was... That was a time when I actively was, you know, thinking about the music as m much more than just a consumer. I, I actually listened to the words a lot, and it had some emotional ties uh, with that album. It was, you know, I had just graduated from college when it came out, and I was, you know, it's a, it's anyway, it's got a lot of material, um, and it's got some of the songs that I find are amazing. Um, so. But anyway, I mean, Jimmy World is one of those topics like Collective Soul that I could go on forever with. So 
Tom Brady. I think I think that's an appropriate Tom one. Brady it's either that or I, I kill you all with. <laughs> with Dude, Tom Brady, How's that would that be like work? my perfect I'd be friend. Curious group. to see that. If Tom Brady and I could go to a Jimmy Eat World concert together, it'd be amazing. What if you guys could jam with Jimmy Eat World? Ooh. That would be pretty awesome. And then win the Super Bowl. Yeah. Hey, uh, Ryan, it do is, you have a song picked out that you want to go with? Uh, no, I don't. Um, <laughs> I can think of one, though. If do Aaron you want us to come or back you want to you? think of one first. Aaron, how about oh, you? Oh, no, I do have one. I do oh. have one. Okay, I want to do uh, Yet Again by Grizzly Bear. Nice. I actually want to do that whole album someday, but not really. Someday. We'll not this doing, time. We'll be doing this for years and years and years. For years. When it's a classic 20 years from now, that's when we'll do right. it. <laughs> when, we became, when we become a really, really weird syndicated radio show. Yep. Mm-hmm. Nate, listen, what do you want to do? I want to do Walk, Idiot, Walk by The Hives. Alright. I was I was chatting with Ryan earlier today and the Hives are a good band for me be, for to do singles with because while I like their albums fine, I more think of like isolated songs on the album like, oh that's really, really good. And um and I was going through probably about a half dozen different songs of theirs, so like, Well, should I pick this one? Should I pick this one? But I'm going with Walk Idiot Walk. Cool. Aaron? Um I went back and forth a little bit, but I I think I'm gonna stick with it. Uh 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover, Paul Simon. I don't know if y'all know that one. Complete Departure from Metal. It's a Thanks lot on. like Angel of Death when you think about it. Yeah. <laughs> and 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover. If, if, if the song was titled 50 Ways to... <laughs> then... Okay. <laughs> Maybe we take that out in editing. Huh? <laughs> that may wow. be more appropriate to the Angel of Death. That escalated quickly. Wow. Uh, (laughs) On that note. (laughs) Oh, my. Wow. Already making jokes about that. Here we are in the second episode. I hated that song. I will tear it down forever. But, uh... Okay, well, thank you guys for listening. If you are listening, this is Nate Owens, Ryan Steiner, John Van Valkenburg, and Aaron Van Valkenburg, and we will catch you guys next time. Which, in the end, was, you know, God, I hated it.